everybody, welcome to another edition of Blast Point Presents. And this time we have got Regal Robot and Tom Spina Designs own Tom Spina, the the Vinnie Vincent of Blast Points. Maybe the Eric Carr of Blast Points. Is that too dark? I don't know. <laughs> Either of those are kind of dark in their own ways. <laughs> it's Tom talking to the legendary Roger Christian. Yeah, and Roger is legendary for all kinds of reasons. Uh, set decorator, production designer, film director, uh, worked on Star Wars, worked on another sci-fi movie I won't mention, but we love it. And uh, it's great to hear what he has to say about his career. Yeah, him and Tom have an amazing chat, as usual, and it's all kind of going around the Regal Robot release of the Gaffy Stick, which is happening very, very soon. Of course, we'll have all the links in the show notes, so you should check that out. But this is a great, great conversation they have about how Roger got into the film business and Star Wars and Alien and designing the lightsaber. You know, it's all these things that we love about Star Wars, Roger is just a key part of all that. So, on that note, take it away, Tom. Hey everybody, thank you for joining us today. I've got a very special guest, Mr. Mr. Roger Christian. He's above me here. I have a feeling he might be next to me, depending on how this lays out when we record it. <laughs> how are you today, Roger? I'm very good, thank you. You're originally uh, from England. You're uh, where yeah. are you now? Toronto, next door to you. I live here now, so kind of midway between LA and um and London, and I've made a lot of films here, and I really liked living here, so nice. I set up here, yeah. Yeah, you found your spot. Yep, found a spot for now. <laughs> um, so uh, we're, we're talking today because uh, we we had you involved in this edition that we're doing of the, uh, the Gaffy Sticks from Star Wars, this prop replica. We will get to that eventually, um, but I think a lot of folks probably know your work, but maybe don't know you yet. Um, and I, I think it's one of those things where you've had this lasting impression on people who might not even know what you've done or, or that it happened. So um, I want to kind of dig in a little bit before we, we dive into the, the sales stuff. Right. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you want to do it? No, no. I mean, yeah, on, I, the, the question I always have is like, <laughs> was was where you ended up film stuff you know making cool things for movies making films things like that was that where you wanted to be from the start um i wanted to make movies i i as a i i hated school like most directors we always have a difficult time and i managed to get out and get to art school and when my first year i got six of the o level exam results in everything else because i was treated like a human not <laughs> the way that they used to treat kids in the early days in england mm. and um i just had to get into the film industry i went to see mate of mine and i he bought an old jag mark 7 for 50 pounds and we went to london to watch dr Zhivago and a man and a woman a claude Lelouch film and they I had an out-of-body experience watching Zhivago in this huge cinema and just said, wow, i got to do this. I, I didn't quite understand what it was. Right. And then surviving while I was at art school, I used to put up marquees all over the south of England for this company in Reading where I lived. And one day 
we noticed a prison camp next to where we're putting up all these big tents. And uh, I went over to look and I said, what's going on? And they said, oh, we're building a, a prison camp for a movie. And I said, well, it looks real. What? And they said, yeah, so real. We got a homeless guy comes past every day to give us food. He thinks we're prisoners. <laughs> and I said, what's this for? And they said, it's Pinewood Studios next door. So my mate and I got under the fence. We couldn't get in, obviously. We got under a fence, found a hole, got in. And there they were shooting the first James Bond film. And the doors were open and the smell and the lights and watching it. And I went, wow, i got to be part of this. That's that was magic. my, yeah, that was my magic moment, my holy grail moment, and, my and looking how? at the... T- yeah, yeah, there's there's like it's, literally a glow of the lights coming out of the doorway. Yeah, and, you it, in it, and the smells and yeah, it was my Luke, Luke looking at the twin suns moment. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, John Williams just following. Yes, music. exactly. <laughs> and um, so the, I just wrote endless letters and eventually got an interview with an art director who was just finishing his huge Department S TV series. Who said, "I'll take you on," but I've set you up with an appointment for a designer friend of mine at Shepparton, and I made all my way down there. It was John Box who designed Dr. Zhivago. And and the first man, Charlie Bishop, who I met, was in charge of the Ice Palace on, on Dr. Zhivago. He created the whole thing. And uh, um, John Box took me on said, if you don't mind making the tea and coffee, I'll take you on. We're just starting this huge movie, Oliver. And uh, I said, I don't care what I make. I just want to be in. You just want to be there. But he was just a wonderful man who took me under his wing because I I came from art school, like with hair down on my shoulders and Cuban boots and jeans, you know, and I entered a world of suits and ties and short haircuts and get – straighten out boy stop watching all these art movies that's nothing to do you get a job you're here and do this john completely supported me and until i eventually they knew i could draw he knew i could draw upsets he knew i could do stuff i made sure they knew that and eventually i started make work of worse and worse tea and coffee i watched them grimace as they drank it i took a gamble and i got promoted <laughs> <laughs> That's and I ended up for anyone watching. <laughs> <laughs> and I ended up working with Charlie Bishop, the first guy who I met, who put me on Randall and Hopkirk. And within a few weeks, the set decorator had a mental breakdown that they were brutal schedules. And I'd drawn up a set that they happened to say was one of the best sets they'd ever had. And I was pulled down to the floor to meet the director and the big producer and the financiers, and they're all standing there. And again, I thought, oh, they they hated this set. They can't shoot on it. Yeah, I'm going to get fired. And they said, no, would you like to be the set decorator from now on? And that was it. Off I went and, like, loving it. And I built my way up, going through Star Wars, Alien, and Life of Brian. I thought those three... I yeah. I was getting offers. I was offered Conan to uh, with John Milius, which oh, did I want to do it? But I'd stuck to my guns. I had this short film I'd written, Black Angel, and I had right. to make it. And I stuck to my guns. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's the one. And um, George read the script by chance. It wasn't sent to him except by Fox, and he commissioned it to go out with Empire Strikes Back. And that kind of launched me. And then this next short film I made 
because the first one I was trying to be Kurosawa and it was very visual and set in Scotland and I had £25,000. I had nothing Yeah, yeah. <laughs> from a government grant. They were ending the grants. The guy who was head of Paramount in the UK had me in for a meeting and said, we want to go out with a bang. It's finishing the grants. Will you come up with a last short for us? Because we loved what you did with Black Angel. And I came up with this script, this young um, guy. I, I'd gone back to film school, actually, to help avert from taking a job because I was broke. <laughs> and um, this young producer gave me this script called The Dollar Bottom that was a, a small book written by James Kennaway, very famous Scottish writer who wrote Tunes of Glory, got Academy Award nomination for it. And it was so beautiful, this story. We made that, and it won an Academy Award as Best Dramatic Short Film. So that's actually why I was talking on the news here today about the Queen, because we were invited to the palace to meet the Queen and uh, Duke of Edinburgh, because I'd made something culturally important to Britain. Yeah. And um, so that led to me just building up and up to a career directing and filmmaking, which is what I wanted to do. I still take my hand. We, we I was asked by friends of mine own a company here in Toronto called Marble Media. They did a series called Overlord and the Underwoods, which has been a huge success. It's gone out all over. They called me and said, look, we're having trouble. Would you do some? I, we know we don't do this anymore, but would you design a robot for us that's a small little creature that is like a from another planet but he's a watchdog and overlord was a full costumed actor who'd been sent down from another planet you know, it was agony we need you guys here in toronto they, they there was no one who could do it they farmed it out to vancouver can you imagine they they oh gosh, it arrived yeah. it arrived from vancouver through customs on the day before shooting, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. no battery for it, nothing. I right. was there good luck trying to get it going. Uh, good luck. Yeah, yeah good luck. <laughs> yeah, we need it, you guys here. I yeah, I'll tell you. Keep <laughs> this in mind. We're we're around. It is it is interesting, and I feel like the schedules get shorter and shorter over the years. You know, you talk about people having nervous breakdowns forty years ago. It's like I can't even imagine what they would do now because we get calls no. on stuff. And it's, you know, when do you need it? Tuesday. It's like, it's yeah. Monday, you know, like, what are you doing? No, it's, you know, and, and Toronto's, I mean, just during COVID, there were 32 TV shows and movies shooting in this city. Still now to this day, there's yeah. Netflix have now opened two massive yeah. stages here. It, it, the crews are now as good as anywhere in the world. They've had so much work. But, you know, my friend is is producing and directing them. They make it, they shoot them in 12 days and edit in 12 days and just throw them out into, it's, it's into live stream. So, yeah, you have to cope. We have to keep yeah. going, you know. Yeah, There's yeah. nothing you can do. You either keep up with the current or you get pulled away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we, so uh, obviously the, all of this stems from, so w would you call it, pestering people like it sounds like you just you wrote enough letters until they couldn't ignore you anymore was is that you know the mo to get a job do you is that your best advice for for young folks trying to get in yeah it's 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 like i always say to them listen 
if you, 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 you've been trying to get over this brick wall and your fingers are down to the bone and, you, and your feet are out and somebody's kicking you in the ribs with your jackboots on at the bottom and you go, you know what, I'm going to get over this wall. That's the film industry. If you've got talent as well, that's a big bonus. So, right. yes. Um, no, I mean, I... You know, I knew nobody. I had no contacts, nothing. I just was writing letters and trying. And one, I sold my car because I had no money left and I had to hitch a lift home. And uh, an architect picked me up and we were chatting and he felt sorry for me. And he said, well, listen, that when they did Cleopatra, they hired architectural draftsmen. One of my people worked on it. He's the one who set me up with a, with a lead that went to a job. Um, you never you know, know what's going to lead to that that break. No, you know, any no. any person, you just it could come from anywhere. It can come from anywhere. And, and the only letter I ever got back from my hundreds of letters I sent to producers and anybody I could find, I um, one wrote back and said, "Look, you were at art school for three years. What I would suggest is try to get in through the art department, but you might need architecture." Mm. In my sheer brutal kind of desperation i got into oxford school of architecture in a year i did the major exam i had art but i needed an economics exam i got it by postal course in a year got in for two years and did architecture and again i i i'd made well i made contact that the the principal was another wonderful man who took again took me under his wing and he gave me my diploma for intermediate exam and he said roger I think you should go and do what you really want to do now because you're going to be bored stiff. We're going to deal with chemical <laughs> structures and beams and all of this for the next two years. And I did. I went off. I unpacked dresses in London. I got a train up and down every day until I got this job and then just didn't stop. And I think, you know, nowadays it's slightly easier in that you, 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 you know, when I was like major designer art director with life of brian i got three hits in star wars alien and life of brian i was struggling to get a film made and i realized talk is okay but you have to prove it so i wrote at film school a short film black angel realized i couldn't possibly do it with a budget there and sheer chance i was um i was Actually, I called Ridley, who was doing the sound mix on Alien, and Bill Rowe was the biggest and the best in the world then at EMI Studios. Fantastic. Did everything, Kubrick's films, everybody's. Mm. I was sitting in watching and learning uh, when the head of Fox came and said, what are you doing? And I told him, and he said, just send it to me. And when he read it, he said, do you mind if I send this to George? Because George hated the short film we put out with Star Wars because there were no adverts in those days. There was right. a program. Yeah, That was it. George just came back, you know, as a thank you to me for standing by his side on Star Wars when huh. he says it himself, only five people stood by his side on that movie and I was one of them. And that was true. The crew thought it was a pile of rubbish. It was a right. children's story that would never go out. They were unhelpful it was incredibly difficult film to make for george but john barry and i stood by him and les daly the art director and uh we got his vision made so it it to answer your question you have to find your voice 
most people lose their voice as they grow up because it gets polished and diamonds and people tell you, no, you can't do that. Don't do that. You've got to find it through your instinct and stick with it and find a voice and then start speaking it and just try to stick to it. I know myself, when I veered from it, I failed. And when I've stuck with it, I've, um, you know, and the journey, the messaging is the journey is the success. If you do what you love to the best of your ability, that's the success. Forget about Oscars and winning this and getting that and being a big star. None of that matters. It's the success that you have yourself. Like, I just look at this behind you and Uh think it's incredible, really, when you look at it and the artistry and and the um, dedication to do it, that's success. Well, and uh, I'll... I'll thank you for our work recreating it, and I'll give credit to the folks that made it in the first place. That somebody right. dreamt up a character that endures. Yeah, it's amazing. And that, yeah, you know, all these years later, we can even the fact that we're sitting and talking about this stuff is amazing. You know, yes, that, that any film that happened, I, I always like to say that a film gets made is a miracle in the first place. It should get an Oscar just to make a film. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) There should be one. (laughs) You know, you you talk about sticking by George, um, and I think that's interesting because, yeah, we've all heard the stories about how difficult the crew was and how, you know, nobody believed in the film. What was it that made you stick by him? What was it that kept those five with him? Because I, I read a lot. After the war, you know, it was grim, and my father was didn't talk to us and it was like you'd be a doctor an architect or a priest that was my my instructions and um yeah so i lived in this inner world i could go to the library i read king arthur i read ivanhoe i read the viking and i i like science fiction i i got the eagle annual delivered when i was like six or seven and followed dan dare um so and yeah, so you're reading above your level at that point, you know. Yes, yeah. And um, so when I met George in Mexico and he came down to see us, you know, and he said, I'm trying to do this spaghetti western in space. And I went, Ah, oh, music to my ears. And I said, Listen, I, you know, Flash Gordon, I just couldn't connect to it. Anything that's made science fiction mm-hmm. was never real. I, I just think spaceships should be old and greasy and dripping oil and that they're kind of repaired by the owner i didn't know at the time but i was describing the millennium falcon perfectly oh yeah yeah and so john barry and i were the first and the third person hired on star wars and um and as soon as i read the script an1 i knew i couldn't make it conventionally i knew with a budget of two hundred thousand dollars that i had to do this massive epic and john barry with the money, I knew I had to think differently. But um, I also recognized the mythology. Mm. I really, well, as soon as I read Lightsaber, I went, oh, well, actually, it was a laser sword, sorry, in the first script. Jello. I thought, okay, what does the world remember about King Arthur? It's Excalibur. That's mm. what is known. And this will be the icon of this movie if, if and when it works. And I thought it would work at the time. So, uh, you know, we George didn't get the funding. He he came to England. We we set up in a tiny little studio for four months. There was only Les Dilly, myself, and John Barry and Robert Watts, with George and um, Gary, for four months trying to work out how on earth to make this film with no money. Literally, I, we, we we had to make R two D two work 
because there was no way to do it. There's no CGI in those days. The, right. the radio control yeah. was primitive. Right. We built a wooden one. The carpenter brought wood from his garage and scrounged for some other bits. We we literally had no money. His top, there's a picture of the wooden one. That yeah. was a film lamp I found on a scrap heap. We got it for 10 <laughs> shillings. Yeah. So literally and Bill, picking through the rubbish to literally make what you needed. We, we, well, we, we, and we had to make... The right size, the speeder, loop speeder, we, we oh, didn't yeah. know if that could be made and how to do it. So we had to get the right size. The windscreen on the one that Bill, again, used wood from the garage. He had wheelbarrows. He took the wheels off his wheelbarrows and we put it on those. And we found an old, completely um, uh, accident-damaged Jensen in in the street and we took the windscreen off and that became the windscreen of this this is how we started yeah for four months to to it till the film was actually green lit by fox do you think that there was some benefit to that i always like to say that you know limitations force creativity uh do you yes. think that by forcing yourselves into the scrap heaps and into the the rubbish bins and, and pulling stuff off of broken cars you got that realism that you were after yeah, I do. I mean, I think that, you know, when I, I I just thought I stuck bits onto the wooden R2-D2, I found some air, aircraft lights and oh, stuck right. the little things and those on, and I thought, you know, this will work for the sets. And I'd gone to see um, bombers and I'd gone to see a submarine to look at it inside, and I thought, how do I get this? I know, I'll use aeroplane scrap. By chance, no one wanted it then, and it was right. sold by weight and aircraft are light. So it's only because George Lucas had made THX as an independent filmmaker that he understood when I went into his office and said, listen, you know, I can't afford to make the sets. We don't have time to do it through the process. If I get airplane junk, I can create the look you want for the Millennium Falcon, and I can make props out of bits of old camera and everything. He said, yes, try it. Any other American director would have shown me the door and said, go, right. please. No, no, you have to make it. something special for it. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, exactly. And instead, you wind up with something more special. Yeah. Really iconic at the end of the day. You know, the the this becomes the first modern science fiction that embraced that used universe, that took that look that you and George both had in mind and has then been you know, imitated and duplicated ever since. Yeah, it set the standard. I, I mean, Alien, we we went full bore on yeah. it. I had to create the whole of that interior look of the Nostromo for Ridley. And, uh, Amazing stuff. And it's still used to this day. And I, th it, it, what happened, it's part of the success of Star Wars, that the audience never questioned they were looking at something that was real. It was familiar. You know, I mean, John Barry's genius was taking George to to Tunisia and saying, here's Tatooine. I don't have to do anything. We right. just had to uh, add a few domes right. and Roger's going to dress technology into it. That was so cheap to shoot in Tunisia at the time. We solved a massive budget problem. So and we can only say this not too process. loud. And, and give a look. Right. You can't say it too loudly because then producers, producers will say, oh, see, they can do it cheaply. Oh, let's cut the budget. Let's do it. <laughs> I won't. Luckily, nobody's watching. It's fine. Um, what do you think makes uh, a good Star Wars prop? 
you know, you see lots of people make props and then you get some people where the, the visuals are right and the feel is right and there's a vibe to it. And then other times they go off track. What is there something to you? Is there a secret recipe or is it just your eye? Um, I think I, I do have a peculiar eye that's come from childhood somehow and being born into London in the war and all of this stuff. So I do have a, an inherent, and I used to get my dinky toys and paint them when I was six to try and make them look more real. And I'd photograph them in, in the garden, trying to make tracks and put them in and do stuff. So there was something inherent in me that wanted to make stuff look real not they weren't toys they were going to be real to me right um and you know john barry in my documentary galaxy build on hope which you know we just brought out now it's a huge kind of final i've been able now finally to tell every story that's never been told um john barry did say there's something um kind of interesting about something that's made for something else but it has a mystery to it and it has a function to it and I could see that like the lightsaber itself when I found the graphics handle I just I just knew I'd found the holy grail because I couldn't find anything that warranted that the, the the mystery and the power of a weapon for the Jedis I knew I had to have something special and that one was the hardest to find but when I did find it I thought here it is and then I changed it and and in the documentary Gareth Edwards who directed Rogue One which is a true Star Wars movie to me um he's he was he's interesting because he says that they showed him props when he started it and he was looking at them all and then he said I just Missed this one and said, no, this looks like a World War II weapon. I mean, that's not going to fly with this. And they said, yeah, well, that's actually Han Solo's blaster. <laughs> so he picked it up and he said, I realized the trick was taking something that had this really great, interesting look to it and changing it just 20%, giving it that little touch. And I think that's the secret. Mm. So, so 80% mechanical grounded real world 20 percent dressing to yeah give you a hundred percent star wars pro that's a good yeah uh, and, and you know and a vision of what star wars had to be i mean the you know everything every weapon i chose matched the character mm. when i you know i the blasters for the stormtroopers i love the sterling submachine gun and sticking a few t-strips on it and a little short clip and a few other things yeah. it became a blaster that could fire and it was real yeah. and solo's gun you know i found the mauser and i thought this is the equivalent of a western gunslinger yeah. and adapted that with some sights on it um you, you know shoot those big guns sorry i didn't mean to yeah like those big yeah yeah guns, the intimidation the brute force coming through to get you you know like yeah they, some of those i left i didn't even change them i just thought these yeah, look yeah. so cool the, i think it's the lewis gun is the one that <laughs> yes exactly it. Like, it just looks like a that's the one of some kind yeah yeah you we were about to talk about your um, uh bowcaster i think that's I found he, he had a gun in in um, Ralph Macquarie's painting, mm -hmm. um, and I found the bowcaster in Baptist the gun hire place with these balls on the end, and I just went, "Whoa, this is it!" If I put some uh, more of my um, 
rifle sights on top, stuck three of them on. It'll change it up enough. And George loved it and changed the script for it. So that became his weapon, you know, and then that's how I came to do the um, Tuscan Raiders because I thought these are wild kind of tribe living in the desert. They're not going to have sophisticated weapons. They're going to have old stuff they half made themselves or anything and then i found the gaffy stick which i'd never seen before in baptism and i went whoa this is it <laughs> but again i had to change it i stuck a mace i found a piece of a mace drilled the end out stuck it in the end so i changed you know, it 10 percent. <laughs> there you go and it's a combination of old world wood yeah. and carved fabricated new world metal you know more well yeah. and, and things like that and you have a mysterious piece of hardware now that isn't just an old Fijian war club and it isn't just exactly. Place, it's something new. Exactly. Um, yeah. um, so um, you mentioned Bapti. So for folks that don't know already, uh, can you tell us what Bapti was and maybe talk a little about what it was like rummaging through that place? Because to me, that sounds like a dream <laughs> to, to go do that. It would be if you went there. Yeah, Baptist was and still is the only weapon hire place in London. They could um, supply weapons for, they did for Gandhi for um, World War II, huge, like hundreds of hundreds of guns, whatever you wanted. They had a massive store. And I knew the owner, Peter Bapti, very well. He lived near me um, and uh, because I rented all my weapons for them. That was the only place to go. And so I thought, you know what? And Actually, I didn't tell anyone when we first started with George. Um, I thought, you know what? I, again, this was my thing. I thought I better show George what I'm thinking. So rather than talk about it, I'll go and do it. So I didn't tell them. I just called Peter Baptist, said, can you set me up in there? This is what I need. And he set me up with a table in the back and I rummaged through. I, I got the sterling because that's what I first wanted anyway. And I, my buyer had got me some tea strip and I stuck that round and put a sights on. I dug through boxes. They have boxes of stuff from Ireland, from World War Two, World War One. I. I mean, they had a samurai suit in there, black one. I, I took the helmet in to Lee to show George because it was beautiful black patina. That was a big influence for Darth Vader. Right, yeah. Um, so I sat in there. I, I made that. Then I found the Mauser and thought, here's my hand solo weapon. And I stuck the bits on it and thought, and I called John Barry on the phone and I said, you better bring George here and come and see if I'm on the right track again, because if not, then obviously I'm I'm out. Right. <laughs> And George came, and that was it. The weight, the heavy, he loved them, and they could fire. We could still fire them and get a flame out of it. When the blaster came out? Yeah. So George stayed with me, um, and we made Princess Leia's pistol together with super glue. He, he got his fingers covered like me. <laughs> and that was that was the kind of token of going forwards to do everything. It, it is part of that recipe you were talking about before. It's that part real world, part add-ons, you know, the the reality with a sprinkling of fantasy that keeps you grounded and makes everything look real. I think, you know, when you when you talk about Star Wars, so, you know, what's funny is, so you you know, you're talking about the props, you talk about dressing the sets down in in Tunisia, you 
what is your official title on that movie? Because it sounds like you're doing more than any one person's job at that point. It, uh, I was set decorator. I, I met Christopher Nolan here. Um, he, they had a 75 mil screening of Dunkirk. And he said to me, he said, listen, you did it all. Yeah. And I said, yeah, I had to do everything. And he said, yeah, in those days... You had to do everything as a set decorator. He said, now it's all broken up, everything. You have weapons, you have this, you have robots, you have every all different departments. He yeah. said, it, it, wasn't it much better? And I said, yeah, I mean, it was. I never slept, but <laughs> I loved it. I loved doing it. There was really John Barry and I as the two creatives. That was it. The art department were there to make it work with us, but that was it. Um, so a set decorator is, was, yeah, that was the all-encompassing <laughs> title. Yeah, people would hear set decorator and they wouldn't dream that you were making Han Solo's plaster. They wouldn't no. think be involved with the Tuscan Raiders or no. you know, going to Tunisia, baby. You know, that's that's uh I made um I made C3PO's eyes because oh, I yeah. came up with the idea how to do it because I oh, hated okay. robots where you could see in or you could not they weren't real or they cover them over. And I I came up with this solution of one-way mirroring plexiglass inside uh-huh. and I, I i sent my buyer out because then ralph macquarie had put them lit up and at that time oh, there yeah. was no way to do it everything heated up yeah by sheer chance at home like 11 o'clock at night to relax i was watching a documentary on the first camera ever put down inside the body and i phoned my buyer on the spot and i said listen these can't get hot find these bulbs find these bulbs and he did he searched around hospitals found them and I, I managed to get a battery hidden into c3po and i made the lighting up lies see kids you watch tv and you'll learn stuff that you'll that'll, <laughs> you'll use in life i think these are great lessons you're giving everybody um yeah never give up you know this is now decades later you're still you know getting asked to talk about it you're still you're doing things like so we just did the signature edition for the the gaffy sticks with you where you sign the plaques People, you know, want that connection to the people who worked on the movie and they want to hear these stories. Some of that, I think, is obviously down to the quality of the film as a whole and the story and, you know, the mythology of it, all the stuff that drew you to the script. But what's impressive to me is how many people are fans of the props? How many people are fans of the look? Does it ever surprise you how strongly that endures? It's kind of surprising because I never thought about it. I just got stuck in and, and with the script and with George and discussing it. And Ralph Macquarie's paintings, those six paintings he did, were a massive kind of influence. The guy's a genius, and I, I bring him out a lot in the documentary. I wanted his, I wanted his name in lights because he's the genius of the vision of this film, and um, I think that. I, I think if I'd have thought about this, it would happen, I probably would have thought, oh, goodness, I but I can't do it this way. Why can't I just get an old bits of cameras and make a binoculars out of them? And a, right. And a comlink. The comlink was... Oh, yeah. It, that was a panic call from the floor. George added it into a scene. It wasn't required in the schedule, and I hadn't done it. And I, I was opening up a pipe junction for John Barry to show him something, and it dropped in my hand, the filter. And I went, wow, there's a perfect comlink. I added one <laughs> ring to like it. microphone? Yeah. yeah. 
it went straight on the floor and went into his hands. George smiled and it was being filmed. And, you know, so I I think, you know, in, in yeah, if I'd have known, <laughs> I, probably right. would have, I probably would have panicked and thought, should I be able to do it? But I think my kind of intuition that everything that I created was right for the character, was right for the look of the film, and it looked real. That was what I'd never seen before in science fiction ever. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think is why they've all stood the test of time and people really like them. George has created a myth for the cinema age, a legend, a new one. He's given people something to believe in. Good triumphs over evil. It's got a group of heroes. It follows the hero's journey as Joseph Campbell taught George and mentored him. And it's got more appeal than most of the religions now for young people, old people, anybody who are looking for answers. Star Wars answers it, and they may not know why. Right. These myths connect to the subconscious and to the heart. They connect, and Star Wars is connecting. That's why I support it. That's why, in the end, I spent two and a half years making this documentary to put these stories as a legacy, I, I was almost forced to by David West Reynolds, who wrote all the early Star Wars right. books, um, to do it because he said, you know, they're not in any of the making of books. There's not mentioned because no one knows. You're the only one, Roger, to tell the story. So I took almost three years off, A, to write the book, and then... Which is and, outstanding for anyone that hasn't picked up Cinema Alchemist. Highly recommended. Uh, well, the last line in that book is do not let tell you do not let anyone tell you you can't, you can. So I, you I think you know I, I look on these not as ego, oh, look what I did. Oh wow, I created Star Wars. No, it's a mentoring for anybody following anything. It doesn't matter if you're you know doing accounting, as long as you're doing it with a passion and a love, that's you know, we all need mentors. Luke could not have been Luke Skywalker and would never become a Jedi Master without Obi-Wan Kenobi and Yoda. Everyone needs mentoring. So I thought, you know, the best way now is to make a documentary and let everybody see the stories for real and hear them and um, witness what we do. Because nowadays, everybody looks on these as huge Hollywood blockbusting movies with budgets. We had no money. We were a ragged group of cinema revolutions kind of fighting you know when i first went from lee studios the tiny studio the day that fox financed the film we went into the big elstree studios the first day there they said you better lay all your weapons out that you've created so that we can see what was going to do and what everybody's looking towards right mm -hmm. The first assistant director, the uh, prop master from the floor, all of these people stood around them. They picked up my blaster, threw it at me across the table and said, this is crap. You it, Don't you realize we're doing a Hollywood movie right. with a Hollywood director? And they went <laughs> off to get me fired. <sighs> so yeah. I stuck to my instinct and I stuck to my guns and I stuck to my friend George, who was a friend by then. You know, we spent four months together and watching movies and George's dedication of of the the creation of all of this you know yeah like making uh, a movie is a war right that's uh, you know. yeah and George's 
you know, it doesn't have to say a lot, but his dedication to what he wanted to do, it shines through. And I, I had the same dedication, and so did John Barry. I think we were unusual at that time. Most other um, designers and set decorators turned it down. They just thought, we this is impossible. Mm-hmm. There's a way to do things, and you can't do it with two and a half months prep and, uh, and no money. So, and, and instead, you guys said, not only are we going to do it, we're going to do something totally new, literally yeah. change the way movies are made forever. Yes. And, you know, too bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, even now, he, he, James Cameron still uses the techniques for Avatar. I mean, you know, they're, 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 it just set a, a way to do it, which I'm really glad because I personally happen to like all these movies. So I'm it's seeing insane. the results that I can believe in. Yeah, and I think there's another thing that happens. You you talk about the hero's journey and, and, you know, Luke isn't Luke without Obi-Wan Kenobi and all of that stuff. But the cool thing that I see with Star Wars is not only, and I guess this happens with all film, but not only did it influence a generation in terms of emotion and religion and all of that stuff, but it influenced a generation of filmmakers and still does and prop people and makeup artists and effects guys and guys who wanted to do models and all of these techniques, and then eventually guys who wanted to push the boundaries of effects into CG and all of that. Stuff. Yes. And all of this kind of, it's this great continued cycle. It goes, you know, all the way back to the birth of film and through now. And it's, you know, each generation passes something down to the next one. And, you know, you're, you're a big part of that. And the look of this film is a big part of that. And there's, there's a ton of inspiration, certainly, you know, uh, for, for me, I feel I owe you a, a debt of thanks because I, Certainly wouldn't be doing the stuff I'm doing without folks like you. Yeah, no, it gives me the greatest kind of pleasure to do all of that. You know, in the documentary in Galaxy Built on Hope, I've got Guillermo del Toro saying he was a young wee lad who went to the cinema and he saw Star Wars. He didn't know what it was. He went around four times to see it again. It made him want to be a filmmaker. I couldn't get the interview, but James Cameron, I got an interview with him saying, when I saw Star Wars, that was it. I had to go and be a filmmaker. Same as Christopher Nolan. I asked him, I said, do you remember when you first saw it? He said, uh, it was 11 o'clock in the morning in this city in America. I remember it and it, what it did to me. Gareth Edwards was saying, when you, when you saw this film, you either had to go into space or make movies. Right. <laughs> and th- this is across the board that I found this kind of inspiration and amongst filmmakers, prop makers, yeah. I mean, I've worked, you know, Bill Pearson, you probably know about Bill from England, who's a model maker who I've used all over the world. He's sadly gone now. But the geniuses that surround us within the prop making world, and they're still using techniques, really, that we, you know, some of us did. And and the early, early kind of creatures on Star Wars that were done and... uh, and it 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 yeah it spawned a love for science fiction. It spawned a love for fantasy, and that to me is why it's brilliant, you know, because it's really as you said, it's just like inspired. You know, George's genius was he hired, and he's right till the end. He always wrote what couldn't be done. Right. He hired people who were young enough to have just had a bit of experience but we're not old and set in the ways like many get to say, no, no, that's not how we do things. We do it like this, this will work. None of us had that. We just said, yeah, okay, we've got to make it work. John Dykstra, Richard Edland, I mean, myself, John Barry, 
the, the list is endless. He did the same with posters. He took people who never done it before and mm -hmm. they made classic posters. He he did that on every single movie. Um and yeah, each one pushed, pushed boundaries. Pushed them. And and the important thing here is, and this is what I bring out in the documentary. He never did it for the sake of technology. He did it for storytelling. Yes. And That's that, the difference. And that, that really is it. It's funny. You know, the people that were too young to know it was impossible. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting call out on the posters too. That's a that's a really good one. I the the Star Wars poster you have behind you is my favorite of that series. Me too, and that's the one actually George has on his own wall. It's so good. Um, I love that poster. So good. Yeah. Um, I'll I'll circle back to the gaffy stick before we yes. wrap up, just because that was the the yep. reason we're talking. But really, you know, that goes out the window when something like that. <laughs> So, you know, for me, I was always mystified by that weapon. I always thought it was a really cool looking thing. I guess this is another sort of where things endure. Uh, you know, come around now, all these years later, the show The Mandalorian comes up, they bring back the Tusken Raiders, and they came to my studio to get the Totokias for the gaffy sticks because they saw we had a mold for one years ago. And we're doing a replica of that version as well. Um, and, you know, that it shows up there, and then eventually Boba Fett shows up with one. You know, what does it feel like to to have made something that then actually gets reincarnated like that over and over? I I I owe a huge thanks to Dave Filoni. Um, and so when, yeah, because I was shocked when Boba Fett arrived in Mandalorian to whack. He doesn't use a gun. He doesn't use a pistol. He's got a Tokyo warrior stick, and he's taking out all of the um, all of the all the stormtroopers. And then he he gave it such a huge mystique in Boba Fett by him wanting to go and make it. And he goes to the tree where he has to Good get journey. the wood, and he does. He gave it a fantastic history behind it, which you know. For me, it was perfect, um, which I'd never thought about. I just thought about this looks really cool and it right. would suit these guys. And we only have had one on the first Star Wars. That that was the one. That's why you see yeah. him doing it. We could only afford one. Uh -huh. I think they may have mocked up a second one in case, but yeah. that was it, the my one. Yeah. And um well, and it eventually it there's film, there's photos of it that kind of show the progression. It starts yes. off fine. At some point, it broke on set in yes. Indonesia, and then someone put it back together, and the point changed a little bit because it, yes. you know, someone just did a quick repair. So by yeah. the time it gets to the archives where we have it, the point's a little different. Yes, uh, but what's interesting was they had Bapti must have kept the mold from it or had made a mold because they had done the Rancor Keepers gaffy stick for Return of the Jedi. And the archives has one of those. So we went when we did our 3D scanning of it, we 3D scanned the hero prop that you put together. And then we oh. scanned the point off of the Rancor Keeper one so that we could digitally fix what they had fixed. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> and, you know, basically turn the hands back on the clock a little bit. But this is these are the details that we wind up having to explore. It's like archaeology. You know, right. You Absolutely. Make it and leave it behind. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 
you know, can't thank you enough for being Not with us with us and, you know, for helping us make something cool for fans. Um, I, I, how does it feel? My last question, how does it feel knowing that fans want stuff that you made on their shelves to look at at all times? It's, it's very gratifying that the trouble I took at the time to, you know, identify who are the characters in the script. What is, who is Han Solo? What would he have? Um, what, what the stormtroopers have and then Tuscan Raiders, what would they have, you know, and spending a lot of time in Morocco and Tunisia in the, you know, when I was younger and stuff, I, I saw the kind of ethnic way that things were and adapted, you know, and these often they didn't have money, they didn't have the sophistication. And I, I wanted to give that kind of to make it real. That's always, always my goal was to make everything real. How would they be? What would this be? And I think it kind of, it's a justification of everything that I did and not sleeping and worrying on the first one and finding scrap and finding bits and putting them together and covering my fingers in super glue because <laughs> there was me. I was in my office with right. broken cameras and anything I could find like a magpie. I had so much junk that was interesting. Um it's a huge justification that 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 care I took and and the kind of regard and and closeness to George of what he was trying to do was worth it was merited you know and 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 to give science fiction you know I, I tell this story very often that if ever in Britain at the time you know in the 70s I said I was reading science fiction I got the same comment no it's not Shakespeare is it <laughs> and right. there's great writers in science fiction there's nothing wrong with the genre it's it's you know and they they've predicted the future they predicted the internet they predicted robots they predicted so much stuff they're visionary and um, so I'm glad to be part of the w awakening to the world that this has an importance and a credibility. <laughs> I think that's beautifully said. I think uh, I think the world owes you a thanks for that. I certainly owe you a thanks for being a part of this edition with us and for spending so much time. And, and anybody watching owes you a thanks for sharing these stories. I think that it's just... One more reason this stuff endorsed is the people yes. behind the scenes. Everybody that was a part of making this is why we all love it. And uh, for me, it's just so great to uh, bring those people in, into what we're doing here and and to to just chat and catch up and, and talk yeah. about stuff is is a lot of fun. And I, I just appreciate you uh, being a part of this, man. Thank you Not so much. You know, Same for me. Yeah. Goodbye. Hello Bye. to everyone. May the force be with you. <laughs> <laughs> and cut. <God. laughs>